so often these conversations around our teenagers, our children who are really struggling, begin. And I mean these conversations begin with parents saying to me and saying to the experts I bring on the show, my child tried suicide. My child's in an acute unit. My child's been to treatment three times and it's not working. My child's addicted to Xanax. My child, and these are hard conversation to have. Number one, because you feel alone as a parent that your child is going through some heavy, heavy stuff. But see, when we study psychology, when a psychiatrist comes on the scene, this is what they've studied. This is what they've learned. And I wanna strongly encourage moms and dads whose children are really struggling at this level to be able to go into a doctor's office or a therapist's office or finding a parent coach and saying, no, here's what's really going on. So that's why I've got Dr. Heim on the show. Dr. Heim is an award-winning psychiatrist. He's a music professor. He's a Churchill fellow. He's been a doctor for 20 years and 13 of these years as a psychiatrist, he has heard the stories of thousands of people. So as you can imagine, he listens a lot. Uh, he loves being a consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy. And we're gonna deal with the mental health issues that are affecting all of us, all over this world and our kids that feel like the new normal, the anxiety, depression, addiction, trauma, suicide, personality issues, relationship destruction. And uh, he's got a gorgeous, sexy accent because he's from Australia and I absolutely love the accent. So thank you for joining me on this episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Parents, I'm your host, Aaron Huey. Remember to listen, like, subscribe, share, and leave a review for Beyond Risk and Back. It helps parents find us. And parents need to hear the answers like the ones that Dr. Heim are going to give us. Doc, thank you for being on the show this week. I really appreciate you being here. Aaron, I really appreciate being here. It's a privilege for me. I love talking to people like you, to speaking to your audience, because you're out there doing something in what is seemingly a desperate situation. Well, we're trying, aren't we? This is the oh. front lines of stuff. Now I have a very specific question for you based on the bio yeah. your assistant sent me. Um, what is this about long walks on the beach and eating celery? What is it about <laughs> you and celery? What is it about me? So, okay, so, so there's this story be, behind me and celery. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, really looking forward to hearing it. <laughs> when I started studying medicine, I was about oh, 15 years older than anybody else there. So I stuck out like a sore thumb. All right. And nobody believed that a professional musician, a classical musician, could become a doctor because science was not part of my brain. I was developing the creative part of my brain. And during at least one, maybe two lectures a day, I'd be eating celery uh, during the lectures. Why now, celery? Celery is the loudest vegetable <laughs> there is, Aaron. Okay. That's Second awesome. is carrot. Okay. So celery or carrot is something that I'd be eating there basically to keep us human because all this wonderful information that we were learning as uh, as medical students, it was all wonderful. But you know what? It sort of goes in dryly as though you are just a page to be written on, just something to think about. Whereas we are all human beings, Aaron. We are all human beings. We all have our own idiosyncrasies. And chomping into a celery is just one of those reminders that, you know what? There's another human being around here. And uh, that sort of maybe a bit of a clown in the class, which is a, a role that I liked. Uh, and I actually gained a reputation at my medical school for being the Patch Adams of our year, all right? Doing some of those crazy zany things. Now he, he set up a whole uh, clinic based on people helping each other. And the movie was just very famous, but the thing is human. We are all human and we can't lose our humanness. And that's part of what we're talking about today, Aaron, because um, I think we're starting to learn uh, to lose our humanness. So I want to I wanna say two things. Number one, uh, Dr. Patch Adams was a mentor of mine. 
And oh, I was okay. invi- I was invited to teach at the Gazuntite Clinic uh, yes. after I showed him the work that I had done with children with fantasy and archetypal play. Um, that yes. never panned out, but I am very aware of finding that out of the box, special, unique moment with an individual client. Now, to that yes. end, psychiatry has currently a reputation in the mental health industry of someone who shows up. And I'm talking in America, so I, I don't know about the medical industry in Australia, but in America, a psychiatrist shows up, spends 15 minutes with you, and then gives you some more pills. Now, we know that not all pills actually affect uh, a change brain chemistry. They just mask it, copy it, block it. It's not. All of the, and I'm not anti-pill. I ran a treatment center for children. We had a psychiatrist and a psychiatric nurse on staff. Medications were a part of all day, every day, as long as there was exercise, healthy nutrition, drinking water, good sleep, and breathing on purpose. Wonderful. But how, let's address the monkey in the room, the giant gorilla in the room, kangaroo in the room, if if you prefer, of saying... What is psychiatry? Because it looks like you're just giving me and my children more pills. So what is actually your job as a psychiatrist? Okay. Now, to answer that, I'm actually going to take you back to when I was a junior doctor and I was working in orthopedics. Now, orthopedics is bone stuff. They're basically carpenters that put bones back together. And this is the way the clinics went. I would follow the head honcho into the room And he would not look at the person. He would look at an x-ray and say, we need to do this, 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 and that. And then he would walk out. And then I would quickly turn to the people, whoever they were, who were just gobsmacked and said, and say, I will be back in about an hour to explain what we are going to do to your body. And that happened person after person, because we had them all lined up in little cubicles, because here's the thing, time is money. A consultant's expertise is I look at an x-ray, I see what needs to be done, I make a decision quickly, but talking to somebody, that takes time. That takes sitting down and getting to know somebody. That can be hours and hours of work without a decision being made. And there's that gap. And so I learned in orthopedics that medicine is overworked. So we look for the most efficient way of doing things. And the most efficient way for a lot of um, conditions in psychiatry happens to be pills because that's where the evidence is. But pills, as you know, Aaron, is not the only thing. There is evidence for everything else as well. But when we are starting to um, uh, treat people on a population level and when the population is exploding with mental health problems, then you start going down more and more to the lowest common denominator which is pills. Then there's something else that happens, Aaron, and that is that people expect to go into a doctor and be fixed. And so this expectation means I want to be fixed quickly. And as a psychiatrist, I often spend a lot of time getting people off pills that they have been put on by other doctors. And then people say to me, no, 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 the pill's going to fix me. Okay. And uh, I go into this dialogue, which basically says, look, the pill fixes the symptoms. Our pills are very powerful. Our pills are very good, but we've got to get to the core of the problem. So to get to the core of the problem, we've got to spend some time mapping out the landscape, finding out what's really going on, and then finding some solutions that will actually work for you. That takes time. And I'm willing to put in the time, but people need to put in the effort as well, because it takes a lot of effort. And you know what? Taking a pill sometimes is uh, a lot easier. Uh, when you've got to breathe properly, sleep properly, eat properly, get out there in nature, know the skills to cultivate friends, talk with respect to parents and things like that. All of those are skills that take a lot of time. Can't I just have a pill? No, you can't. You've got to do some work. So it's, it's both sides, Aaron. It's both sides. It is a medical industry that wants to fix people quickly. And it's also a population that want to be fixed quickly rather than both sides needing to put in some really complex effort. So much of psychiatry is understanding brain chemistry. Uh, 
It's it's yes. not just the 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 counseling or therapeutic aspect of emotional processing of of yes. trauma or something like that. It's understanding what's going on chemically in yes. the brain. Is yes. it is it true that a lot, if not most, of the issues that we're dealing with, anxiety, depression, addiction, trauma, suicide, personality issues, and relationship breakdown, have to do with dopamine and serotonin. I know that that is like all of a sudden we're talking about two primary chemicals, but those seem to be the popular ones to talk about. Is it, I can't imagine that because it's a human brain and it's such a, a complicated organism, that it's as simple as heroin addiction is dopamine, depression is dopamine, anxiety is dopamine. Is it? Is it? Is that true, or is that just way too basic? Okay, okay. that's that's a wonderful question, Aaron, and it comes right down to science. Science means knowledge, what we actually know, and we've only really discovered, no, not discovered, but we've actually known about these chemicals for about 20 years, wow. maybe 30, 35. It's actually very, very recent. And here's the thing about human nature, Aaron. We like to talk about what we know uh, because it makes us feel comfortable. We don't like talking about how much we don't know. And at the moment, there are some major centers. There's the European ba Brain Project, the Connectome Project, that says, you know what, we've got to get up there and find out what's actually happening in that brain. Because the answer, as you know, Aaron, is that it's a lot more complex than we are making it out to be. There must be tens of thousands of different chemicals up there in that brain. We only know of a few hundred. And uh, I, as a psychiatrist, probably know about a dozen really well. But in the public, we talk about one or two. In fact, we're basically talking about dopamine. Because we do understand dopamine and the things that we know about dopamine are very, very useful to us. But there are so many other things going on that we don't know. And so we pretend that this is the answer when it may hold a lot of uh, gold for us, but it's not going to be everything. So dopamine, yes. As far as addiction is concerned, it holds uh, a lot of credence. We do, uh, our dopamine hypothesis is standing pretty firm. We do know what we're talking about in, our, in that area. Serotonin, uh, that our antidepressants work on the serotonin system is still only a theory. It's probably right, and I believe that it's right, but nobody actually dissects a living brain and says, is this what's actually going on? It's still just a theory. What I'd like us to do is to talk about some of the brain chemicals that we need on a day-to-day -day basis that we're not getting enough of. And here I'm talking about oxytocin. This is uh, one of the brain chemicals that we're not talking enough about because it mediates things like love and trust. And if anybody has ever come across the idea that there's not enough love or trust in this society, that's right. And that's messing with our oxytocin system. And we need oxytocin. And the other thing, Erin, is beta endorphin. Now, people talk about beta endorphin as though you know, you go for a big jog and you'll get this uh, rush of beta endorphin. That's not where the most of beta endorphin comes from. The most of beta endorphin comes from singing, playing, dancing, laughing together, hanging out together, looking in somebody's eyes and feeling part of the human race. That's what releases beta endorphin. Whenever you take a group of teenagers out to the Rocky Mountains and they're sharing something together and they feel, hey, it's just great to be part of the human race they're sharing beta endorphins. And the way our society has developed in our prosperity, we are marketing dopamine because we can sell to people who want their dopamine hits, but we're taking away their oxytocin, their family time, they're getting together with friends out in nature, their beta endorphins. And this, I believe, is what's driving a lot of the mental health crisis. Okay, I'm going to do something I have never done in 250 episodes of beyond risk and back i okay. i feel like yes. we have cornered a psychiatrist and he has told us the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth and so for that i'm going to have the crowd cheer for you <laughs> <laughs> this is unbelievable i am i have been interviewing 
and working in the mental health industry for now 20 years, I have interviewed over 200 plus experts in this. And hearing you say, we talk about these two because we understand these two, but here's what we don't understand. You brought up oxytocin. And I want to, I want to say that in, in my years of, of hearing about dopamine and serotonin a lot, I've heard about oxytocin a couple times. And one of the things I have heard, and, and you can validate this or say, nope, that's not true. You're totally off base. Find a new job, which I will, because I want to listen to you now. I want to, I, I believe you and I want to listen. But I heard that if you actually hold someone and hug them for a minute and a half, just hold, don't talk, don't rock back and forth, just hug them. That for 90 seconds, your brain starts to release oxytocin. Is that accurate? Absol- Is- Absolutely true. What? Absolutely. In fact, I, I will. Okay. So, so firstly, after what you just sort of said, you know, that I'm telling the truth and the truth and nothing but the truth. First thing I got to say is, so help me God, Aaron. All right. <laughs> I got to say that because I'm going to do the scientific thing. Okay. That, um, and I've got to do this, that everything in science is based on evidence. Yes. All right. And this is actually why we like talking about what we like, because it is backed up by evidence. What I have given you is a a piece of wisdom based on my clinical experience and my knowledge of the brain and what's going on that I think is a really strong hypothesis. Okay. Okay. And I I have to say that because... That um, makes sense. uh, if, If what I... Uh, said was known science, then all of psychiatrists would just move and start uh, working with that, right? But the thing is that as a clinician, I work with oxytocin every day because uh, as soon as I talk to somebody, as soon as we make a connection, as we are doing right now, Erin, right? I'm starting to work with oxytocin. You feel like a human being when somebody's telling you the truth. You feel like a human being when somebody's leveling with you, when somebody is just joining with you, hey, we got to do this. All right, but let me illustrate oxytocin because there is a study that came out in 2009 that is one of my favorites. This was done by a scientist on her wedding day. On her wedding day, uh, she said, don't bring me any presents. I want you to give me your blood. So when people showed up to the wedding in the morning, she took a vial of blood from absolutely everybody who turned up there. What? Yes. And then uh, after a few hours, people had a morning brunch. They talked for a while. There was a bit of music. Then the ceremony started. And right at the point where you go through the whole of the shebang, walk down the aisle, do a few readings, whatever. Okay. I now pronounce you man and wife. At that moment, she stopped the whole proceedings and took a vial of blood from everybody that was there again. What did she want to show? She wanted to show that everybody who turned up there <clears throat> had a uh, increase in dopamine. The biggest increase in dopamine was in her. Her friends had a bit of an increase in dopamine. Her family had more of an increase. Her parents had more of an increase. And the only other person that had more of an increase than anybody except herself was the groom. The groom. Okay. Yeah. He had that increase in oxytocin and Thank goodness he had that increase (laughs) or he would have heard about it for the rest of the life. But what he wanted to show is that feeling of love that it correlates directly with blood oxytocin levels. So we do know scientifically that oxytocin mediates feelings of love. Every time you have a handshake in business, there is oxytocin there. And you see in a world where there's not as much trust, where people are not looking each other in the eye, where, um, some companies want to ban the handshake because, you know, we don't quite know what it means anymore. We're in a society that is stamping out oxytocin, less and less oxytocin. That is bad for the human brain. That's bad for all of us. We got to date stamp this uh, this recording because we are now on January 12th, where we're yes. coming into our second full year of the epidemic experience. You live in a country that's really struggled with it. I'm living in a country that's really struggled with it. We've struggled to agree on it. We've struggled the, the arguments about it. The, the healthy debates are long gone. Now it's full on people in the street and anger. And 
I do my my one hundred percent percent honesty about what I know and think about pandemic and masks and vaccine is I don't know jack and I don't know shit. What I'm going yes. to try to do is uh, protect protect myself, protect other people yes. because I'm scared. I'm yes. I'm yes. scared, and I believe that the majority of the reaction that we're seeing, the disconnect, the separation, the the anger, the violence is coming from fear because we're not looking each other in the eye anymore. We're wearing masks. Hugging people can kill you. Shaking hands can kill you. Being in the same room with people can kill you. This is terrifying. Now, which chemical in the brain is being most affected by our disconnection? Okay, so um, firstly, again, I can only talk about the chemicals that I know. Of course. Right? Uh, and and the, the easy answer is all the chemicals in the brain are being affected because our whole being is being affected. Uh-huh. But that feeling of disconnect, um, the way that I formulate that is a lack of oxytocin, a lack of trust. Aaron, I want to take you back 100 years, okay, when the Spanish through, uh, flu went through the world after World War One. Right. Right. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have social media. We had our hometowns and we had the people around us. And you know what? We knew them well. We even knew the town delinquents and the people who were bad characters, but we kind of knew them. They were part of our world. And because of that, there was a lot more predictability. There was a lot more feeling of belonging. And I am saying there was a lot more oxytocin, right? And because of that, in that pandemic, People were able to band together and at least care for each other. Now we're living in in bigger cities, bigger towns. The small towns are empty. I don't know my neighbor here, right? My neighbor could be sick and dying, and I don't know about it. That is an unbelievably strange situation for social creatures like human beings to be into, right? But that's the situation that we find ourselves because we're all connected to this internet and we think that we're part of each other, but we're actually not. We are all individuals speaking through a screen. The eye contact, the hugs, the touch, which are deadly these days, right, is what keeps us together as human beings, suffering together, crying together, caring about each other. There's just a whole lot less and less of that. So that means less oxytocin and less beta endorphin. Now, you're talking about how we're all fear at the moment. And, and yes, fear mediates a whole lot of other chemicals that I won't talk about today because it'll get too complex. But it brings up the purpose of dopamine. Now, dopamine actually has a purpose. And the purpose of dopamine is survival. Nature will give you a dopamine hit so that you enjoy things that are good for survival. If you are really thirsty, if you've got a, gone for a marathon walk and you haven't had a water bottle, then you get some water you get a dopamine hit because nothing is better than that water after a huge walk. Just like if you eat a good meal when you are hungry, you get this amazing burst of pleasure. And nature gives that to you because nature wants you to survive. And doing those things are great for survival. This is why sex gives us such a huge dopamine burst, because it is good for survival of the whole species. But you see, lately, Aaron, what we've done is we have uncoupled the purpose and uh, from the pleasure. We now know how to get dopamine hits without the purpose. So uh, we will keep on with the uh, pleasure because it feels good. Uh, we don't have sex to make babies anymore. We have sex to feel good. We don't uh, eat meals to be nutritious. We eat meals because we enjoy eating. And uh, we drink stuff not not to quench our thirst, but because it makes us feel good. And when we do that, we can get the dopamine, but we lose the purpose, which means we lose what nature wanted us to do, and that was to survive, but to survive together. What Dr. Heim is talking about is this connection that we share. I've heard it described a bunch of different ways throughout the years. Limbic resonance um, is, is one term that when someone feels something, someone else can feel it because there's a resonance of the limbic brain, which we know is the survival brain. 
But to understand that dopamine is this aspect of survival, that our human survival depends on dopamine production and to begin to understand how things, and this is what we're going to come back to him and talk about, is how things like cocaine, uh, heroin, that these things begin to copy these chemicals that are necessary for human survival, and it's not real. And so our brain starts to get confused and we find ourselves alone. Parents find themselves alone. Addicts, people who have been abandoned, abused, assaulted, dealing with addiction, we all find ourselves alone. In this parenting masterclass that I have, brabapp.com, I have a section in there called Connection Before Correction. Because when things are going bad, when when parents want to scold, consequence, punish, when schools want to scold, consequence, or punish a child's risky decisions and behavior, we lose more connection. We are already dealing with a disconnect within our families and our children when our children are at risk and beyond risk. And I'm here to tell you that in 20 years of working with parents, you can't have compliance without alliance first connection before correction. I want listeners, I want you to go to brabapp.com because this 56 course parenting masterclass that is completely self-placed, self-paced is available for less than a week's worth of coffee. And I priced it that because I want every parent to experience what it takes when your child is utilizing risky behavior. I want the parents to understand how to regulate their own nervous system so that they can have connection with their child before the correction that they seek can take place. Go to brabapp.com. Brab, B-R-A-B for Beyond Risk and Back. Brabapp.com. Take the 10-question quiz to find out if you start in the red, the yellow, or the green, but you get all three courses for a week's worth of coffee. Let's get back to the doctor and find out more about pills and skills. Okay, doc, this, this is driving so many questions in my head, knowing how drugs, harmful ones and healing ones copy brain chemistry. Okay. One of the things about cannabis and the THC molecule is that it copies a nondamide, right? Which is a neuromodulator. It, it is produced in excess when we're still in the womb as a child. But when we smoke pot, our brain thinks it's having a nice big production of a nondamide and being a neuromodulator, it means it's helping us calm down and regulate after vigorous exercise and stuff like that. And Does, is it also as simple that once we're using heroin and our brain goes, well, I don't have to produce dopamine anymore because if a brain can produce it at a 10, heroin copies it at a 10,000. And the brain's like, whoa, that's awesome. I don't have to produce it. And meth is even worse because meth destroys your neurotransmitters and the receptors so that even when you stop a long-term meth addiction, your body cannot produce these chemicals anymore that's right now is that true even with the healing ones like like for example naltrexone therapy for heroin addiction or low dose naltrexone therapy for self-harm struggles this is a dopamine inhibitor and so your body your body's literally being like stuff in the face you can't produce it so it produces more So I'm trying to understand how the psychiatrists, how the doctors and the chem corporations decide how to work with the brain chemical that is struggling in the first place Yes, with drugs. Is that a clear question? Uh, It it is a clear question, but I can't give you a simple answer because... God uh, dang it! Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, but, but I'm going to use an analogy to, because I'm always interested in what can we do about this situation, right? Right. Uh, because the bottom line about uh, therapeutic drugs is there is a problem to be fixed. We will research and develop a drug that can do something to fix that, and each drug actually works differently to get an end result, right? But, of course, we didn't do research and development on our brain and how we work for survival. Now, this is the metaphor that I want to to use. You mentioned limbic resonance. Yeah. 
and that is a term that I love because it resonates as a psychiatrist and a uh, neuroscientist, but also as a musician. And I used to, uh, I used to uh, work in orchestras up the back in the percussion section. But you see, I was part of about 100 people that put in a lot of effort individually and together to bring up a result, which was called a music concert. And after the concert, you were on a high. You felt fantastic, not by yourself, but because you were part of 100 people that produced something worthwhile. So the pleasure that you get, the uh, dopamine release, if you like, was linked to a purpose, right? Now, this is what drugs do. Let's, let's take uh, uh, methamphetamines. Methamphetamines takes every member of the orchestra and separates them and puts them in a different room and says, here, uh, just smoke this or inject this and you'll get that same feeling uh, that you will get after a, a concert. In fact, you will get a hundred times that feeling. And here's a bonus. You don't have to practice your instrument to get there. You don't have to turn up for rehearsals. Okay. In fact, you don't have to do anything or produce anything. We'll just give you the feeling. That's what cocaine, methamphetamines, heroin, that uh, marijuana, that's what they do for us. They can give us the feeling without producing anything. So often as a psychiatrist, I see my work, particularly with young people, to say, nah, get back in the orchestra. You practice your instrument, right? You turn up to rehearsals, you put in effort, then you get the privilege of feeling good. You can do it with sports. You practice your football skills, you turn up for, um, uh, for coaching, then we play in a competition. And you know what, you might even lose. But if you win, then you get that feeling. And when you're mountain climbing, when you're bushwalking, when you are studying, when you're doing anything worthwhile, you will get that dopamine release, but only after all the effort. And that's the problem with the recreational drugs. They will give you that feeling without any effort. So the lesson is that if we can combine the pleasure and the purpose, keep them connected, then you've got a winning combination for the brain. Then you've got what nature wanted you always to do for your own survival. And then you actually feel good, not just by yourself, but with people all together, because this is what we don't talk about. In an orchestra, there's a lot of oxytocin, all right? I have actually played together with musicians who were people that I thought I hated, right? And as soon as you start playing music together, you go, hey, that felt good. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was good. And you're making a connection with somebody that you thought was a jerk because you are making music together, okay? And all of a sudden, that person's your friend, right? That's what happens in an orchestra. And that's what can happen in society when we're humming together and we're working together. If we get out of this pandemic, all right, we will feel good about each other, all right? We will feel good about the companies that put in their development, about the people who did their distancing, about the hospital workers that helped us all. We will feel, hey, you know what? It's great being part of this human race. But if we disintegrate without the limbic resonance, we're going to hate it. Aaron, we're going to hate it. Let's let's move this conversation towards depression specifically, yes. because yes. especially among teenagers and children, depression is on the rise or it's now being recognized as depression when your generation and my generation, which are most likely the same generation when we were younger, you just, it wasn't recognized. There was a lot of walking wounded when we were younger, but now we're going, hey, that's autism, that's depression, that's anxiety, that's trauma. And yeah. so whether it's actually on the rise or it's actually just more recognizable, I wanna, for the parents who are listening, let's talk about depression because the first thing that teenagers turn to is recreational drugs. Because in the moment, they yes, feel better. That's exactly right. Right? Yes. But then yes. they stop they stop getting high, the depression comes back. Yes, that's right. What is the basics of depression? Let's talk about the science and then let's talk about pills and skills. Because we okay. know and here's the thing I hate about the conversation around skills and depression. Well, you just need to go volunteer at the Humane Society and work with the animals. You just need to go exercise. You just need to go, and what people don't recognize is that depression is not a feeling. Depression is a description of brain chemistry. 
the brain chemistry is depressed. We were on uh, auxiliary power. We go into a depressive mode. We're now on life support. You can barely get up and take a shower. Going to dig a ditch for an orphanage in India, while that may help your depression, uh, you're too depressed to do it. So I want to I want to come back to what is chemically in our brain depression. Okay. Uh, now uh, I'll just address one thing before that. Okay. I will get to that, Aaron. Uh, you were basically asking the question. Um, uh, are these actual rate rises in depression and suicide? Yes. Or does it just seem like it? Recognition right? that this is a thing. Yes, there is a bit of recognition, but uh, the hard statistics is actually in suicide. Now, uh, suicide was relatively stable, except for a few bumps in the whole of the 20th century. But in the last 20 years, the suicide rate in the whole adult population has gone up by 33%. Wow. That is huge. And that is a hard statistic. Now, in people aged between 10 and 24, we've just had a study come out from the CDC to say that in, those, uh, uh, in that age bracket, uh, uh, suicide rates have gone up double in some states. Jeez. Anything from significant 20% to double, all right? So these are real. Uh, so, so that means that we are not just treating something that we've found out about, it is real because depression and suicide are linked. Now, the thing is, uh, you wanted to know about the science of depression. Now, as a clinician, I go through these cycles. Oh, I understand depression because I felt down. Oh, but how come I come up when other people can't come up? So I don't understand depression. Oh, yes, now I understand depression. It's got to do with serotonin. If I give people a serotonin pill, their depression comes up. But then why does it keep going and why does depression get to the stage where people lose their contact with reality and why does depression get to the stage where they will then give up their own lives rather than feel like this so the bottom line is that what i'm saying is that as a clinician i do not actually understand depression so when we talk about depression in terms of brain chemicals we talk about serotonin mainly why because our pills work on the serotonin system. They also work on the noradrenaline system. So we say that noradrenaline is part of uh, depression as well. We're also finding out that they're working on the melatonin uh, system. And there's probably a whole lot of systems again out there that we're not aware of. But how does it get in the first place that people's serotonin and brain chemicals are down? Is there a genetic component? And yes, for some families, I see that and everybody sees that. And for those people, uh, the pills tend to work really well. But how is it that we are now in a society where we are using antidepressants like they're going out of style? They, they, it has shot up enormously and yet there is still so much depression around. So more antidepressant use and more depression are they causing depression? No, they don't cause depression, but there is something else going on. And what's going on is the way that we're living, Aaron, the way that we are living together as human beings. So in this uh, large study that showed that uh, suicide rates are doubling, uh, and that was in North Hampshire, uh, uh, they asked the question, why? And they go, well, it can't all be social media, could it? No, it must be climate change. It must be racism. Yeah, it, it must be a disconnect. It, it must be all of these things. When you're talking about huge questions like that, it's very difficult to get the evidence to say this is the answer. The likely answer is it's all of these things. But as human beings, we are social creature creatures. And as a psychiatrist, I see that we are losing our connection with each other. Uh, we're losing our connection with an immediate family. And I'm not just talking about parents. There are a lot of parents out there that feel really guilty that think, oh my gosh, I must be a bad parent. Right. You know, parents spend about as much time these days with their kids as parents did 30 years ago, 50 years ago, perhaps even more. Wow. It's, it's not the lack of parents. It's the lack of where's that uncle? Where's that cousin? Where's that person down the road that you, you just used to visit every day? Where's that community meeting place? the churches, the sports clubs. We used to all go out together just to watch the newsreel in, uh, in a town. Now we do it all in our own living room. 
the parents are there. But you know what? For a lot of kids, the parents are the only people that are there. Where are those mentors? Where are the soccer coaches? It's because our whole society is disintegrating. And that's where I place so much more emphasis on oxytocin and beta endorphins. So the bottom line, as far as the neurochemistry of the uh, depression is concerned, yes, serotonin and dopamine and noradrenaline, but that's only because we know them, right? Why is the depression happening in the first place? It is not the natural state of affairs for we human beings to be depressed. It's so amazing that a byproduct of depression is isolation and disconnection, right? Right, yes. that the sickness reinforces the the struggling brain chemistry in the first place. Yes. Is it is it possible to only battle and this is a I have my my listeners questions in my head. Yes. So yes. so is it is it possible to only battle depression with a pill or can you battle it just with skills? Can you avoid one or the other or is it always going to be both? Uh, it, it's going to be even more than that, Aaron. There are at least four things that we need to battle depression. We, we need the pills. Okay. We need the skills. We need the personal love. Yeah. All right. If parents want to know what can I do to help battle depression in my child, you grab them by the shoulders, you look them in the eyes and say, hey, I just want to let you know, I love you. I believe in you. I'm here. Right. Because that eye contact means that one brain is engaged intimately with another brain, okay? And it's a total focus of attention. And it's more than the words. It's even more than the eye contact. It's our anterior cingulate gyrus, which is part of the limbic system, talking to another anterior cingulate gyrus, which means that we are connected through empathy. Our amygdalas, which is also part of the limbic system, is connected, which means that you actually feel the pain that they're going through. And parents will know this. You actually feel somebody else's pain. That's part of that limbic resonance. And there are so many parts of the brains that are connected so that another brain does not feel alone. Because more and more, our young brains in our society is feeling, uh, feeling alone. And that brings me to the fourth thing. The fourth thing is that as a society, We've got to start getting connected again. And I don't mean social media and the internet. I mean, we have to find ways of meeting as people. And gosh, I'm talking in the middle of a pandemic. This is the worst time to try to do it. But all of these things that I'm talking about were well on the way and were happening before the pandemic. The pandemic is not what uh, is not what is adding to the uh, depression. It's that feeling of disconnect. You talk about depression, reinforcing the isolation, well, the social isolation reinforces the depression. We're either on a downward spiral or an upward spiral. And when you take a bunch of kids out to the Rocky Mountains and make a group of people who were strangers to each other, you're on an upward spiral. You know that you're having life-changing experiences and they feel part of the human race again. You need more of that. Doc, while, while we've been talking, I've had your website up, drchristianheim.com. Is that, it's phenomenal. They're, they're, your podcast, the blogs, the links to your YouTube channel, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, like there's so much here on your website. And then of course your, your newsletter. Um, I, I want to know, is there anything specific or anywhere specific you would like someone to start connecting with you and when they go to your website what do you got from there I, I i just gave a list but you've got something about the seven love types and i'm very curious about that as well but how can people find you how can people work with you and what do you have for them when they go to go find you okay th thanks aaron so so as you mentioned the website is the best place to start drchristianheim, drchristianheim.com. And it does have the podcast. Some people like listening to messages. Some people like reading messages. Some people like watching messages. So we have a YouTube presence as well. But for, for your listeners uh, here, I do want to emphasize um, uh, the book that I brought out last year called The Seven Love Types. Uh, and, and look, I, I got to say, people around me said, why do you write a book on love? Nobody wants to hear about love. Uh, sort of what a passe cliche word 
And I said, exactly, because we are all lacking love and we do not understand love. So I have brought out this book that talks about the science of love, that talks about the psychology of love, and then the different types of love, because we do not understand it, Erin, and you've got to know love to be able to show it. And so I would point people at that particular book. It's available at Amazon. And I take people through the science of love so we understand what's actually going on. Uh, because it's not just some soppy thing that the movies like to tell us about. And it's not just something that you feel with somebody for one night and then forget about them. We all know that that's not what love is. But it's become a bit of a, a cliche word because we're not getting enough of it. Wow. And so in that book, I talk about practical ways that we can get more with the people really close around us, with our colleagues, with our friends, and even with strangers in society. Because whenever you pass somebody on the street, and in Australia, we just go, g'day, just look them in the eye and say, g'day, uh, that's actually sharing a bit of love. And when you do that, you feel like you're part of the human race. Whereas if you just walk by somebody uh, and, and they don't even acknowledge your presence, you actually feel your oxytocin level going down because for that moment, they didn't want you as part of their human race, okay? So these little interactions that we have, as a psychiatrist, I know they're extremely important. So I delve into the brain as to how those sort of things happen. So that's where I want to direct people at the moment, that the seven love types, that, that book from last year. My final question for you, doctor, is you're a parent, you've got a kid who's struggling with depression, they've been self-medicating with drugs that, you know, whether or not the world accepts them, you, you struggle with the idea, you visit a psychiatrist, your kid might be on a medication, sometimes they take it, sometimes they don't, their system's all up and down, and you know connection is the most important thing. As a parent, yeah. of course you know that. It's, 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 it's a given. However, yes. your, your teenager's choices are driving you insane, crazy. You're angry, you're, you're, you're furious, you're fatigued, and you're afraid. Yeah. Number two, your kid doesn't want anything to do with you. They roll their eyes at you. They say terrible things to you. They isolate and stare at a screen. Number yeah. three, when you do have moments at dinner or moments at thing, you're not feeling reciprocation. You're not feeling energy. Those are the listeners here. Yes. What is your advice for those parents with you saying consistently throughout the entire episode, it's love, it's connection. It's, it's an environment that affects the neuro, the, the neurobiology. How yes. as a parent, do you facilitate a loving environment when your kid is, what do I say? They're, they're, they're gone. They're, they're blown oh, okay, sideways. Okay. Right, right. So, so in that, 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 that last comment, they're gone. They're not gone, right? Okay, and, and this, is, this is the secret. This is the secret that no kid will tell you, okay? They love you. They are in awe of you, right? But they don't know how to make that connection. Now, unfortunately, with all the social media that we've had, uh, we've learned how to disconnect from each other because the social media wants itself connected to you. So through the anger that they're giving you, you just look them in the eye and still say, I know that you're angry with me. I know that I'm angry too, but I love you and I need you. And you need me. We're in this together, bud, if you like it or not. I'm still going to be here with you. And in those odd moments of dinner, when you get that sort of connection, Keep having it. Make sure you have that dinner without the mobile phones being there and say, yeah, for these half hours, we're going to have this time together. And I don't care if we're angry together. I'm still interacting with you. You're part of me. I'm part of you. Even if we're arguing, it's still a better experience because I love you. That'll get them thinking. And then little by little, they'll want more and more because the human spirit wants oxytocin, it wants beta endorphins, and then it can have its dopamine and its serotonin to feel good about itself with other people. I'm gonna do it again. I am so turned on by this show. 
I'm going to do something that I've only done once ever, and that was on this show earlier. Dr. Christian Heim. What an unbelievable, amazing educational experience with him. And what I've not said on this show is that the day I got sober, May 21st, 1998, the reason why sobriety entered my life and stayed was because within a 24-hour period, I experienced unconditional love three times. The first time, from a divine source. The second time, from a stranger on the phone when I called Narcotics Anonymous. The third time, from my dad, the man who raised me. I had spent my whole life as an abandoned child, struggling with abuse and addiction and being assaulted and being abandoned. And I didn't feel love. And in 24 hours, I experienced unconditional. I experienced this thing that I had been searching for my entire life. And I realized in that moment that it was searching for me. And so what I'm going to say to the parents who listen to this show, be the thing your child is searching for. Be that love. Be the lighthouse in the storm. I know it's hard. I know it sucks. I know that they should do things differently. But there is one beacon. And you can call it spiritual, mental, physical, emotional, or financial. I don't care. But what I know is that sobriety stuck with me because of love. I want you to go to drchristianheim.com. H-E-I-M is how he spells his last name. I want you to read his blogs, listen to his podcast, go to his YouTube channel, connect with him on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way we do our best work with our children. My thanks to Deepin Productions for making this music and making this podcast sound damn good. My thanks for to Your Cause Consulting for making sure this show's in front of the parents who need this show because their kids are struggling. And thank you, parents, for listening yet again to another episode. Go visit Dr. Heim. This was good stuff. I'll see you next week.